We have now released issue three of the New Thinking Aloud magazine. Download it for free at newthinkingaloud.org. New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the making of a paranormal explorer. And my guest is Dr. Courtney Brown. He is the author of a number of books involving extraterrestrials and remote viewing, including Cosmic Voyage, a scientific discovery of extraterrestrials visiting Earth, Cosmic Explorers, Scientific Remote Viewing, Extraterrestrials, and a Message for Mankind, and Remote Viewing, the Science and Theory of Non-Physical Perception. He has also written several books on nonlinear mathematics and its application to political science. In fact, he's a professor of political science at Emory University. However, I want to be clear that his work in uh, with extraterrestrials and remote viewing is completely separate from his academic work at Emory University. Welcome, Courtney. I'm very honored to be here, Jeffrey. It's a pleasure to be with you. I wanted to mention the title of one of your books, at least on nonlinear mathematics, A Snake in the Sand. I thought that was a oh, br yes. brilliant description. Serpent, serpent in the Sand. Serpent in the Sand. That was an interesting book. We'll, we'll talk about that on another time, but I, I, I have a, a, a deep a deep love of nonlinear mathematical applications within social scientific settings. Well, it's actually a topic of great interest to me. It actually does relate to paranormal stuff because in nature, everything is nonlinear. If you look around the room, you'll see things that are like tables and corners and things. All of those are straight linear things. Statistics is built on the linear model. So it's built on the idea of linearity. But nature is not linear. If you go outside and look at the tree, look at the bark of the tree, the leaves, everything, behavior, everything is nonlinear. And so for us to be looking at social phenomena in terms of linearity, it means we're constraining the mind. We're constraining the intellectual framework that we're allowing ourselves to look at that thing. But in fact, that's not what the thing really is. And so that's very close to what we're talking about with extraterrestrials and, and paranormal stuff because we limit it sometimes to what we allow ourselves to think because of the intellectual framework that we have. But in reality, the nature is much broader and more interesting. So that nonlinearity compartment is actually similar to my interest in everything else. I thought as much. And I've personally been involved in using nonlinear mathematics, neural networks, for financial forecasting. So yes. I have a, a sense about it. And, and for the benefit of our viewers, just look at the stars in the sky or the clouds and exactly. you, you get a sense of, of the nonlinearity of, of the universe. But 
today for this particular interview. Well, I should also thank you for making the journey all the way from Atlanta to Albuquerque. So while you're here, we're going to do interviews in depth about your work on remote viewing, as well as your work uh, creating videos of, of UFOs. But for this interview, I want to give our viewers a sense of Courtney Brown, the person. So uh, let's start with your early childhood, because I know your story begins there. You you were raised in New Jersey. Yeah, actually, I was yeah born in Newark, and I graduated from Weehawken High School, which is where the Lincoln Tunnel comes out on the New Jersey side. However, let me say that I will be completely open and honest with you about my past. I am not expecting you or any of the audience to believe that at face value. It's just that I'm not going to hide anything. And what I mentioned about my past, we've actually kept secret up until January of this year because we, we just didn't want to deal with the belief factor in it. But now we feel the time is, the, the disclosure process is far enough along that we, I needed to be upfront about this. So I'm telling people what it's, what it's about, but I'm not asking you to say, uh, prove it or I'm, I'm not asking you to believe it. I'm just stating my side of it. And we can begin with the childhood stuff. Oh, okay. I think it's fair. I think our viewers understand that this is your story from your point of view. Yeah. Well, starting with childhood, it actually goes before childhood because I have memories from before I was me. Oh. So we can visit that. There's a reason why I'm here doing what I'm doing now. But when I was a kid, I was born from a normal human mother, a normal human father, raised and born into a normal human body. But when I was a child, I had lots of extraterrestrial contact. And this was real life. And this was way before Whitley Strieber wrote Communion and talked about the grays, the short guys with the wraparound eyes and things like that. But I used to be asleep in my house, uh, my parents' house. And in the bed, there would be two little gray guys on one side and two little gray guys on the other side. The short guys that were gray skin and wrap around eyes. And they just stayed there for like a long time, year after year. And I always wondered if I should tell my mother about these visitors. Now, these are not things that I drug, that I uh, dug up through memory or dream analysis or hypnosis. I just woke up. I mean, I just got up in the morning and I said, I wonder what those guys were doing. But they never threatened me. They seemed to be more protecting than anything. Uh, they never did anything bad, and I felt totally comfortable with them. But they were always there. When you say always there, this is before you fell asleep, when you're wide awake? No, they would, they would show up um, after I got into bed, mm -hmm. and then they would be there in the middle of the night. and I'd. So when you're in sort of a hypnagogic state? Yeah, but I remembered them sort of just... When I was there, lying in bed, and there they were, yeah. and then I would—I clearly remember seeing them, and then wondering in the morning, mm -hmm. wonder what they were doing. Yeah. So I, I've had that early experience. In addition, and this ties to my behavior based on where I was and who I was before I was Courtney Brown. I always <laughs> was fascinated by those guys, mm -hmm. and I always wanted to—I knew I was supposed to either be in a saucer be in a ship, or I knew I was supposed to be underground. I used to dig holes in the ground, like big holes, to build laboratories and things like that, 
they were so huge, neighboring school systems used to have to come in and bulldoze them because they were fearing someone would, I was, you know, they were fearing someone would fall into them, but I was trying to cover them up and make laboratories in them. And then in terms of ships, I'll give you an example. Uh, my father brought me to a, somebody gave me $5 for a birthday present. And my, I said, okay, this is what I need, the next step for my ship. And so my father, I was a little guy, my father brought me to a lumber yard, and the lumber yard guy said, okay, what do you need? And my father said, he's building something, he needs some wood. And the guy looked at me and he said, what do you need? What are you building? I said, I'm building a flying saucer, and I need the materials for it. So I, I bought one piece of wood. I was saying it was bending because it had to bend like this. So that was always on my mind. I had also a, f a fascination for technology for a young age. So at the age of like 10 or 12, I was building shortwave radios, uh, powerful ones. They were like really powerful ones. <laughs> and they actually got the attention of the authorities in New Jersey where they would come around my neighborhood and they would stop the kids on the street. Hey, we need the, there's some kids on the street here somewhere. Kids, we, we're looking for some uh, teenagers with motorcycles and walkie-talkies, really powerful walkie-talkies. Do you ever see anything like that? They all knew who they were talking about, me. And the kids would always say, no, we don't know any motorcycles and kids with walkie-talkies. But it was my radio transmissions. And to test the radios, if they were powerful enough, I used to put the carrier wave out really strong while someone was talking, people would have their conversation, and then I'd cut it off and listen to it to see if they responded. And inevitably, they'd start swearing, some jerk with the carrier wave is disrupting our... <laughs> and I'd say, great, it worked. But that was a lot of sort of a tech focus and an ET focus for a 10-year-old kid. <laughs> not many 10-year-old kids. And that's just the shortwave radios. I'm not telling you about the the powerful arc waves that we I used to make. make they were enough to blind somebody, had to use special lighting. I did things that no kid 10 years old should be doing, but it was all tech-related. And then, um, but I, and also when I was young, whenever I had some type of trauma happening, I used to reach out. I knew I was supposed to ask questions, and I'd get some type of response back. And that sort of continued, that always that knowledge that there was people following me that I, that I could always rely on that would sort of keep me okay. And then um, I got to graduate school uh, as a, I, I did my, my, my bachelor's at Rutgers in New Brunswick. And then I went to uh, San Francisco State University for my master's. And just as I started my master's, uh, I was introduced, if you want to call it that, to Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy. And there was this guy in it called Harry Seldon. Yeah. And he was a psychohistorian, and he combined psychic stuff with nonlinear mathematics. And it just, it was like somebody pulsed a bolt, that's it, that's mm -hmm. what I'm supposed to do. So I said, let me focus first on the, on the psychohistory side of it, let me focus first on the nonlinear mathematics. I ended up writing a master's thesis on catastrophe theory, which I was told no one at San Francisco State at least had ever done, but I did a master's thesis on catastrophe theory. I then went to Washington University in St. Louis to study under the one social scientist that was a master in systems modeling, where I could do all of this stuff, a guy called John Sprague. And I continued to work on the nonlinear side of it. 
I ended up publishing the only published work in the social sciences with fully estimated catastrophe theory models, chaos models, uh, other nonlinear, highly nonlinear model systems, all with the eye that this was that part of psychohistory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, it was like my, it was like the image of Harry Seldon was me. And it was, it was, that was the model that was like, gave me an image of where I was supposed to be going. And then um, I got introduced to the remote viewing stuff after I got tenure. Now, I've spoken to, to academics before tenure who wanted to be interested in this stuff, and I've told each and every one of them, don't even try. Wait until you have tenure. Publish as much as you can before tenure, and only after tenure, if you have any other interests that are non-standard, don't let anyone know about them till after tenure. Well, after I was tenured, I heard about the remote viewing stuff, and the light bulb went off. This is interesting. This is stuff. And then I was, uh, during meditation, I was, I was deeply involved in meditation at that time. Any particular school of meditation? I did the TM Cities program. It was just Transcendental yes. Meditation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, that was one that the Hollywood stars and the Beatles and things mm-hmm. did. Not many people learn it today, but in the old days, it was a thing. They also claimed to levitate, if I remember. That's yogic flying. Mm-hmm. And I have participated in that yogic flying stuff. It is very interesting when you're in the domes in Iowa and there's 2,000 guys in one dome and 2,000 women in another dome. You can feel a wave of consciousness that's as real as... It's subjective, of course, so you can't ask me to prove it, but it feels like you're being hit by a truck. It really feels like there's a thing. Let's go back, though. You talked about memories before you were born. Uh, Before we get too far into your graduate work, I want to... Okay, I'll tell you about those memories, and I'll explain why I have those memories and why other people have difficulty getting memories similar. Before I was... And I'm not trying to say you believe me or anything like that. And this is something I wouldn't have said before January of this year. I would just keep it all silent. Before I was born, I was not here on earth. I was in another place. And I was in a group. We were fighting uh, essentially an authoritarian type of system, regime. It's sort of like Star Wars type stuff where you have a, a fascist empire and you have an, a rebel group that's trying to fight. And the goal was for us to come to Earth to produce a essentially a rebellion from within, from below, on Earth. I was the one, in a particular meeting, I was the one who actually presented the plan. Now, I don't know if I was the guy who sort of, I don't think I was the sole guy who invented the plan, but I was the one who was presenting it at the meeting. So I was involved in the generation of the plan. My son, Aziz Brown, he was also at the meeting. And the the goal was to take our group and to come here on Earth. The only way you can get into Earth is as a prisoner, as a person who's as a born that person was born here, which gives you a little hint that we've discovered that this whole planet is being run like a prison. But you have to be born here. But the issue is in order to foment a revolution from below, it can't be from a, a ship that lands and then start saying, hey, guys, you're all confused. You have to do it. You have to realize the truth. It has to be discovered from within. So we had to have a support system that would support us while we were born as humans. I was to come first. My son was to come later. Other people were to come at a different time. And we were to develop this 
information source that would later be used by others, a lot of people are involved, to help with the revolution that would come. And that's where the Farsight thing came about. Aziz was really excited uh, at the time when, when we were presenting it. So he really wanted to get into it. I do, of course, uh, do meditation, typically about two hours a day. But uh, when meditating, when he was in his mother's stomach, he came to us and I could see him clear as day. Um, you would not have seen him. Other people would not have seen him. But in my mental state, I could I could see him and I could see what clothes he was wearing and so on. And I, he, he entered my mind and I said, who exactly are you? And that's how we found his name. He said, I am Aziz. Oh, you're my son. Okay. Because we had been thinking of that name among like a hundred other names. He said, my name is Aziz. And so that was, that was, that's how I sort of, and we had a very interesting conversation, you might call it. I was saying, oh, it's so interesting. You know, I'm so interested in stuff about extraterrestrials. He was so upset. You have no idea. He said, you don't know anything. You forgot everything. You're so stupid. And he, imagine a ping pong ball that you take in a closet and you smack it as hard as you can and it rattles around all the walls. That was my son in my head. Ugh, he was saying, you stupid ass, you, don't, you forgot everything. You forgot everything. You don't know what you're talking about. And I was saying, no, this is going to be so interesting. I'm so interesting. We're exploring about extraterrestrials. You jerk. You forgot the whole thing. And I said, no, look, wait a second. If you're going to be my son, you've got to behave yourself. And he sort of contained himself. <laughs> okay. okay. But that's how he came in. And that was very interesting because he, he was reminding me then that the expo, I had to relearn everything, guided, but I had to relearn it from scratch, like a human would have to relearn it. And I had forgotten that we were in a war, and that there was battles going on, and there was opponents, and there were good ETs and bad ETs. I forgot the whole thing. And he, at that time, remembered the whole thing. And so when he came in, I eventually told him about those experiences, he recovered his memories quicker than I recovered mine. I took like decades. He really burrowed in. He was very concerned that he, he didn't want to be like me and forget so much for so long. So he actually really focused on remembering who he was. He did the QHHT. I think that's what that's called. It's quantum where you go in, where you have uh, your memories you know, help bring them. You go into a... Uh, a hypnagogic state and then you the memories come up he invested that plus a lot of other things in um, even the Monroe Institute tapes in in focusing on getting those memories back he didn't want to be detached but as you come in here as a human being you lose everything and then you have to regain everything but he did it much quicker than I did it but anyway that a memory of what I was and what I was doing that's, and that's where Farsight is. We're part of that project. Now, we're not responsible for the whole disclosure thing. We're just responsible for building this library of information that is going to ref sort of fill out. Now, if you think in terms of Harry Seldon and psychohistory, remember the, 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 the first foundation was a library. <laughs> they had to develop a library so that the galaxy could rebuild itself. So that concept of Farsight as a library of, of projects that fill in the historical gap of what really has been happening to humanity over a few thousand years, 
That's that part of it. If I recall properly, I didn't introduce you as the founder of the Farsight Institute. I mentioned your books. I didn't mention Farsight in the introduction. So I apologize to no, you and to the viewers for, for that oversight. And uh, of course, we want to talk about Farsight. That's really when it comes to the paranormal, that's your main work. Yeah, but you also wanted to talk about my early background that led to that. Yes. And that's, so now we've covered up to the point where uh, I've learned about remote viewing. Yeah. And then I realized that was the psychic part of the psychohistory equation. Mm -hmm. I had known, I had already learned the mathematical part and I had learned the psychic part. And then my son coming into it was part of that development as well. But let me let me backtrack just a, a moment. And you were part of some sort of extraterrestrial conflict. Yeah, the galaxy is a war-torn wreckage of a Holocaust that is beyond anything that we've experienced on Earth in terms of Holocaust. And the Holocaust that we have experienced on Earth are horrific. Uh, so, you know, if you can imagine everything that was done, imagine the Nazis with super powerful, amazing weapons. Uh, imagine what could be done. So in the galaxy where they've had a million years to put things together and new weaponry, a fascist power can do crazy things. There's two essential elements of fascist powers. First, they want to control everything. They want to expand. And secondly, they do not rely on free will. They don't believe in free will. They have their vision of what they want to do, and they impose that vision on their populace. Now, their populace doesn't really have a say in it, and also their populace is normally not allowed to escape. If you think in terms of the Soviet Union, um, people couldn't get out of the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union. When Mikhail Brishnikov or Rudolf Nureyev, the ballet dancers, got to the West, they had to escape. And it was during ballet visits to Paris or other places that they ran during the movement from the airport terminal to the jet. They would make a mad dash to get to freedom and then ask for asylum. So people couldn't leave fascist states. And in China under Mao Zedong, people couldn't leave China either. They can leave now, but in those days they couldn't. And so fascist powers, in order to keep their populations, they had to do two things. They had to control the information that the populations have so that the populations wouldn't want to rebel. If you control people at the, with a gun in their head, that's not as effective if you control the information that they have access to. So fascist powers always try to control the information. Secondly, they try to control people from leaving. Now, what happened in the galaxies over millions of years, they figured out how to essentially stop people from leaving by dying. Dying, historically, has been a method of transportation. So at Farsight, we don't use the word soul or spirit because of all of the, ex all of the religious baggage. We use the word isbi. Now, that is a person who is for the purpose of being. That's it. And we have found that it is absolutely, completely impossible for anyone, as far as we know, for anyone in the universe to kill an isbi. It is impossible to die. However, you can capture an isbi. You can enslave an isbi. You can trick an isbi. You can do all manners of bad stuff to an isbi, but you cannot kill an isbi ever. And apparently nobody has ever figured out how to do that. And so what we found out is that the 
fascist galactic powers figured out how to capture people after they died. So death was no longer a means of transportation. And that kept people in the fascist sphere, just like the Soviet Union or China under Mao Zedong kept people within those borders. For example, people in, in, in Myanmar, formerly Burma, they can't get out. And if they would want to get out, they could, you know, get shot or something like that. But the point is they can't get out. The fascist government, the, the authoritarian government, uh, actually that government would be better described as authoritarian, not fascist. But the authoritarian government uh, simply doesn't allow that freedom of movement and they don't allow freedom of information to get into it. So that was what those, that's what that group was. It's a very large section of the galaxy. It's not the whole galaxy. There have been apparently major wars. And one of the things that is, we discovered about Earth is that in the very early days, early, early, early days, um, Earth was a place of refuge for people who did figure out how to evade the traps after death in order to get out of the fascist place. They would come here. This is not a good planet for a long-term civilization. So they figured this was a planet that people didn't essentially want. You have major disruptions. Every once in a while, you get a solar burp in the sun, that coronal mass ejection that really is very disruptive. And we have pole shifts every 20,000, 25, 30,000 years. Things get moved around. It's very disruptive. And this is a eight, if you think in terms of miles, it's an eight-mile thick crust over a ball of molten lava. What? That's not the type of planet you want for a, a million year civilization. Every few hundred, every few, like 20, 30, 40, 100 years, 100,000 years, something's going to seriously disrupt it. But as a refugee place, it was really useful. The authoritarians actually found out about the place and all the refugees that were coming here. And then they came here and they set it up as a prison. So that's what we were trying to come in. We were trying to come in as rebel forces in here to try to disrupt, to disrupt the planet, uh, basically because a lot of our friends and relatives and our whole, our whole body of people that we know, like all billions of them, uh, we're here and we're trying to actually foment the revolution, break the prison down. Mm -hmm. And so the disclosure thing is a really big, important thing for us. And that was the, that was the plan from the beginning for us to come here. But we had to come in as prisoners. And then I had to relearn everything. <laughs> so so I, if I understand you correctly, you're suggesting that in order to foment a, a, a rebellion against fascism, the key element is to awaken people to their innate uh, psychic, precognitive, remote viewing capacities. And it's very difficult. For example, I can tell you I can see an extraterrestrial that would normally be invisible to you, and you'd say, how is that possible? <laughs> I can tell you that I communicate with my son before he was born, when he was still in his mother's stomach, and you say, how is that possible? And, and it's the same thing like... We take video recordings, which we'll cover in another interview, of UFO ships that are totally invisible, invisible light, but with specially configured cameras, we can get them on demand. Mm -hmm. So this invisibility thing is a big thing. The reason people cannot see them themselves is that the death experience on Earth is the same as the death experience in the fascist authoritarian realm and the galaxy. They have traps all over the place. 
the typical death experience uh, for a human is you die and you see the light. You've heard that story. You see the light and you get drawn toward the light. That light is a trap. It's like a wave that's sent to the isby and that draws, it feels good and it draws you in. And once you get into it, it becomes like sticky. And the more you resist it, the more sticky and stuck you get. And then you get sort of brought to a place where you're shocked with an electroshock treatment that's way higher voltage than lightning. And what that does is it rad, it cannot kill the isby, but it rattles you. And it essentially makes it so that you can't see like remote viewing, remote perception, telepathy, that all sort of goes out. You're just rattled and you can't see that anymore. And then an AI comes in and says, it's not done by like live people. This is all computerized. <laughs> an AI comes in and says, you know, we've talked about your situation with the council of elders, the guys over there, 12 of them. And um, we have decided that we think you have a few more little wrinkles you need to work on your personality. Remember that argument you had with your daughter and that the grandmother, remember that was never really settled and your husband is still quite distraught about XYZ things. We personally think you would benefit if you went back and worked those things out, but it's your own choice. You have to make the decision. Having no memories anymore because you've been zapped and having sort of other limitations, you hear that and of course your answer is, Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, let me work out a few more of those personality wrinkles and you go back in. So people get recycled and recycled and recycled infinitely and that's how they keep the population stable. Now, there's probably, uh, there's a little less than 8 billion people on the planet now, but imagine how many billions there are in the wings waiting to sort of get recycled in. And so this is a huge resource for the authoritarian powers. It's not so much for the minerals or for the trees or whatever, but the isbies, that's a huge population. You cannot animate anything in the universe without an isbe in it. So if you want to have a being that does, if you want to have a warfare force, if you want to have a mercenary force, if you want to, and you have to have prostitutes to service those mercenaries, and then you have to have traders and everything, you have to have everybody doing everything that you see in normal authoritarian powers, you have to have isbies doing that, and they have to be loyal. They have to be contained. They can't be rebellion. And this is a contained package of a huge number of isbies, and that's what we were concerned about. This isby population here can wreak devastation over the entire galaxy if it gets out and the authoritarian powers are using them as slaves and mercenaries and things like that. It's important not just to rescue people, but to disrupt this this slave force, essentially. Um, but but we're dealing with a population that cannot remember any of this, and they don't they don't understand telepathy. It's hard for them. It's not easy, and they don't understand remote viewing. They say, "How is that even possible?" It's normal for people in the galaxy. That's the normal way for people to communicate telepathically. If you think all the UFO reports, if you listen to any of the stuff coming out in the disclosure community, which is which is big now, now they have congressional hearings about it. The ETs don't talk with words like we're talking right now. They, in, they when they communicate, even when they communicate with other humans that are interviewing them, they talk telepathically. And the military people try to find people that are sufficiently intuitive to be able to have these conversations, and then the report back. What is the what is the guy saying? What is the ET saying? So telepathic communication is the normal means of communication in the galaxy. And w humans can't even do it. 
because they've been rattled. It's this death trap. We call them death traps. And they're set up all over. And they're quite common throughout the galaxy. They're in the fascist area of the galaxy. They're also extremely hard to dismantle, even to detect. The advanced, the level of technology is really, really advanced. So what we really need is for the planet to go through a disclosure movement where they finally find out all of this stuff, but they find out everything. And then they do two things. A, they demand that their leaders align themselves with the good ETs rather than the bad ETs. And secondly, then the, the brain power of the planet, which is huge, focuses on the problem of this, of locating and dismantling the death traps. We need, we need the actual intellectual power of humanity to focus on that problem. Uh, anyway, so that's, that's, part of the goal. This is the information that you recovered through through this process of re remembering who you were before you were born. For me, it was slow. For my son, it was really fast. And uh, for me, I had I, I took decades to sort of piece it back all together. But I remembered the things. I just couldn't connect them all. Yeah. But uh, finally, I was able to connect them all. My son didn't need that for some reason. He actually sort of knew the big picture uh, for, I'll give you an example. When he was a little baby, uh, I was teaching at the University of Michigan uh, a nonlinear mathematics course. And uh, just for fun, I went to, back in those days, they had pornography shops where you go and you buy, a, you know, a paper magazine, you know, like Hustler, Playboy, things like that. And so I bought some some pornography I, uh, uh, books. And I was going to, you know, my wife was there, so we were going to get some ideas, you know, and things like that. So they put them in the brown paper bag, and I took them back, and I had them in my apartment. And then my wife said, uh, okay, it's late now, Aziz. It's time to go to bed. So, and he looked, he looked, and he got halfway up the stairs. Then he looked at his mom and said, but mommy, daddy's looking at pictures of naked ladies. <laughs> and like, the thing was in the book. I mean, the book was in the bag. There was no, he had no knowledge of anything, but the telepathy was as clear as day. I mean, he knew what my mind was thinking. Yeah. Uh, that's normal for people, yeah. it, but it's not normal for normal humans. So maybe that was one of the reasons Aziz was able to sort of piece things together, sort of. I, I think the reason he was able to, personally, I think the reason he was able to piece things together is that when he came to me beforehand, when, we, when I was meditating, he was really upset that I forgot so much. And I think when he was starting to grow up, he, he was really super motivated not to have the problem that his dad had. I think that's what happened. So I gather you learned from him as, as well as through your own uh, work on yourself. And I also presume since you set up the Farsight Institute, you've had remote viewers exploring these questions as well, and you've learned from them also. Exactly. I used the remote viewers to target all sorts of interesting things that helped piece it all together. The whole idea of this being a slave planet that was being run by uh, by basically a slave by by basically uh, prison guards, that was something we had to piece together. And I didn't I didn't understand all of that. For example, we did the Zeus project. We have a project on Zeus. Zeus was not a god that was needing to be worshipped or anything like that. Mysterious guy. He was a guy like you and me. He was a prison warden. This was his job. And he didn't fly around in a chariot. He flew around in a UFO, which the ancients thought of as chariots. And he was a serial rapist. That's it. 
He was a prison warden. He thought of this planet as a harem, and he used to go around raping underage girls right in front of their parents. He was, he's the guy who should have been in prison. He was a, he was an abusive SOB that should, he, but he was the prison warden, and he just thought like, think of the people that ran concentration camps, what they did during World War II, during the concentration camps. The people that ran those, they abused those prisoners to no end. I mean, it wasn't just that they burned them in, in gas chambers and, and ovens. It, it, they also, they raped them, they did everything that was bad, that was Zeus. He did whatever, and whenever the population would would be just would get uppity and start rebelling, he'd send some crazy lady like Hathor go punish them, and she would beam weapons at them and wipe them all. That was it. Wasn't mythology? You know the Stargate series where they yeah. talk about. There's a lot of truth to the Stargate series. There's a lot of truth in science fiction that brings back sort of concepts that actually did happen. In fact, the good ETs, my side, the ones that I work with, have actually spent a lot of time. They have, they're totally locked out from the political leadership. They have no access to the political leadership. I, I'm telling you that for real. They, they, they don't have any access. Minimal at the best. Minimal, but Political leadership of what? Human political leadership. Oh, okay. Totally locked out of that. Well, what about the intergalactic? There, there are different sides. There are many species and many groups, but there's two general categories that we call the good ETs and the bad ETs. Mm -hmm. Within each group, there's all types of different species, all types of different genetics, all types of different everything. But the good ETs have no access to the um, human political leadership. The military, the human military, U.S. military, is totally split. There's a good solid chunk of them that is supporting the bad ETs because of the agreements, the written agreements that have been signed by the United States government and those ETs for technology help in exchange for the ability to operate here on Earth. Now, this isn't just me saying this. Chaim Ashed, the former head of the Israeli Space Directorate, for 30 years, that's their version of NASA. He's also a, a, a decorated general and now a college professor. He stated... Now, he thought he was going to get away with it by doing this in Hebrew, in a Hebrew language publication. But it turned out that a whole bunch of people know Hebrew, and it immediately got translated into all sorts of other language. But he stated point blank that the U.S. government in particular has written agreements with these, with these extraterrestrials. He doesn't describe these extraterrestrials as the bad ETs the way we do, but he says the written agreements do exist in exchange for their ability to operate here. That was a free will decision that they made. The good ETs, the ones that I work with, they don't have access to the leadership and they do not have any signed agreements with the leadership. So they have been seeding information into, for example, the Hollywood side of things. Scriptwriters go to bed and they get an idea during, the, during, the, during their sleep that the good ETs are feeding into them. Now, the good ETs have this like fanatical um, adherence to free will. So the scriptwriter wakes up and says, I got a great idea for a new series or a new episode or a new movie. Now, the good ETs will not force that scriptwriter to do it. So there has to be a free will choice in the scriptwriter to pursue it. But that's where you got the Star Wars movies, the Stargate movies. That's where you got Mi the, the Matrix movies. That's where you got the Star Trek series. All of that stuff came because the good ETs were seeding ideas in that would eventually transform the the masses to be able to accept all the complexities that are out there in the universe. In fact, the Borg, for example, of Star Trek, those are normal human beings 
good people, friends, everything like that, that I get captured by the Borg and then assimilated. And then they don't have free will anymore and they end up doing horrible things. That's a parallel for the greys that work for the bad ETs. The, those greys actually come from a population that was just like us. Actually, they were a little bit more emotional than us. And we're going to get to that, I think, in another episode, in another interview. But the basic idea is they were captured, their ISBs were enslaved, they were put into genetically lobotomized bodies that don't have the ability for emotions. And that's the people that get it, get interacted with when they're in the, in the abduction phenomenon. Were you described as a child, these gray beings standing? There's grays on both sides. Those are not enslaved ones. Oh, I see. The enslaved ones look the same. Yeah. But the enslaved ones don't have free will. They don't have the ability to do what they want to do. Mm. The ones that were with me, once someone is a, the, the side that I am with is trying to free the other ones because those are their brothers and sisters and friends and relatives that were captured by the authoritarian side, stuffed into these bodies that have they're basically genetically lobotomized so they have no emotions. And that's what they needed in the abduction phenomenon. The abduction phenomena needed to have people that could do basically horrible things to humans where emotions were like rampant and not react. They would be good servants, slaves. Well, when you save somebody like that, when you get them out of that situation, they're still a gray. You can't just pop them into one of our bodies. It's traumatic. You have to, they have to grow out of it over time. So there's going to be grays that are in those bodies that they got used to on the other side as well. And you have, and there's a re-education process that the free will ETs don't force. They don't say, get used to it, suck it up, get into a body that has full emotions and just get back. It's traumatic for the person. So they have to slowly get out of it. And those were the ones that were with me when I was a kid. Another point that you raised in our earlier discussions is uh, the idea of your daughter. Yes, I have a daughter. Let's talk about your daughter. Well, I have a son, a biological human son, and I have been on ships. Now, this is not something that I'm dragging up through hypnosis or anything like that. I have been on ships, period. I won't go how I got there. I won't go into all that detail right now, but I have been there. And when on there, I visit uh, my daughter. And my daughter is a hybrid. Uh, she's not, um, she's not of, she's not, a, she's, she's a half sister to my son Aziz. Mm -hmm. And so she's a hybrid. And, uh, I'm assuming that it was a, you know, one of those in virtual, what do they call, you know, test tube baby type things. Yeah. But genetically, she's half mine. Does, has he met her? No, he's not met her, but uh, he knows of her mm -hmm. and he's happy that he has a sister. <laughs> and when I sit next to her, uh, sort of on the console, she works at a place, you'd consider it like a computer console, but it's like, it's got lots of stuff on it, all types of things. Uh, it's like a Tesla thing on steroids. <laughs> it's like a, like a Tesla dashboard on steroids. It's got all types of stuff. And she was very proud sort of telling me how she works everything and her job. And she seems to be very proud of me. I'm tremendously proud of her. And um, she knows that I'm here on earth doing things to help her relatives and her friends. She knows why I'm doing this thing. So, but, but now, why wouldn't you tell me how you got on board this craft? Partially because it changes every time, and it also is 
not something I fully remember every time. Mm -hmm. I, I remember being there and I remember coming back, but I don't always remember the actual process of getting onto the ship. Mm -hmm. And um, But when you're there, you're in a, a normal awake state? I'm like here. Uh -huh. I'm like here. And but when I come back, uh, there's two ways. The easiest way is for me not to come back in the body. For me to go in a body, it's a big deal. But the ETs have an easy way to lift the ISB out of the body. That's the that's a real interesting thing. You know, what we humans don't have an ability to do is we don't have an ability to disconnect from the body. Some ETs can do that. They can actually disconnect and say, I'm leaving. I'm getting out of here. But we are, we're sort of stuck. Anyway, it's, it's easier for them to pull me out and then to relocate me somewhere else. And I can see her and she can see me. Um, and I look just the way I look now. And then the coming back part, um, it can be either smooth or jolting. If it's jolting, they do it on purpose to make sure that I remember and recognize everything. It's like I could be lying there in bed and the body is like comatose. And then if I come back in a jolting thing, it's like being thrown into the body, like boom. Yeah. And I literally bounce out of the bed. I say, holy, <laughs> holy blankety blank. I'm not going to swear. but And I sort of know everything that's happened and I remember everything mm -hmm. just as clear as day. Mm -hmm. um, that's the most common way for me to get up there. I can also obviously see the extraterrestrials when I'm in a physical human body. I can see them and I can talk to them. And I know other people can't do that. So they say, I must be deluded. But that's the problem with dealing with humanity. You're supposed to be able to see them. And they can't. And you created a large number of videos, I think, with uh, your conversations with an ET you refer to as Harvey. Yeah, yeah. And, and they gave me the idea of Harvey because that's from the Mary Chase stage play and movie yeah. starring Jimmy Stewart, Harvey, where he's a puka, which yeah. is a rabbit, a large rabbit. Six foot tall rabbit. <laughs> and he can't, no one else can see it, but he can see it, it and he has conversations. It's a delightful movie. It's a, <laughs> and so that was sort of a, a play on the sort of that joke. Yeah. Um, but you're I, suggesting that, that there's more to the myth of Harvey than meets the eye. I actually asked them if they seeded that idea into Mary Chase's head mm -hmm. so that the play and the movie would be around for that type of thing. And they, they didn't tell me directly, but they nodded sort of suggesting they were involved in that. Uh -huh. They winked at you. They, it was something like that. It was, it was something like that. But I can see them clear as day, just mm -hmm. like I see you when I'm having these conversations right. with Harvey. And I know it's not, and I've tried at the beach. I, they know that I can't see them, and I can tell you why it happens. But I've tried at the beach to make them visible. I brought special infrared lights, and I, spot, I brought special ultraviolet lights. Now, interestingly, the infrared lights, they said, that won't hurt us. It's not even close, but you can shine it. You won't be able to pick us up. But, and I shine the lights at them or through them to see if I can, and nothing happens. And I said, what about the ultraviolet? Because the ultraviolet can actually burn me because it's a really powerful ultraviolet light. And I have a, I have a severe allergy to wrinkles. So that's my joke. <laughs> so I don't like to be hit by ultraviolet <laughs> radiation. Anyway, so I asked them, is this going to hurt you? And they said, no, it won't hurt me, but it's getting closer. Mm. So they're at a, and there is an electromagnetic spectrum. Mm -hmm. And in terms of quantum mechanics, nothing happens unless 
there is something called a superposition that happens that occurs within the electromagnetic spectrum. The visible light spectrum is a very narrow part of the electromagnetic spectrum, but atoms, molecules, subatomic particles, they're created as superpositions that occur as waves, as energy interacts through the process of destructive and constructive interference to produce a manifest, a, a thing, a physical thing, like a solid thing. And in the old days, they used to think that nothing else existed but the real and here and now that we have, the physical stuff that we have here and now, unless there was this superposition. And so they said they had a wave form, and they called it this quantum wave function, and it collapsed right. to produce the reality that we see. And then Hugh Everett, in his 1957 dissertation, which at the time was widely laughed at, but he did it at Princeton with, with uh, Wheeler, John Wheeler. He said, that's a monstrosity. You can't just, he literally called it a monstrosity. You can't just say all those other potentials went away. He says, what you have is you have multiple realities and you don't see them unless you're in sync frequency-wise with that particular superposition right. manifestation. And uh, he was widely ridiculed, and he got so upset by how badly he was ridiculed, he left physics and went into the defense department and was one of the primary creators of MAD, which is Mutually Assured Destruction. And at that time, they had some military and civilian leaders who were arguing in favor of a first strike against Soviet Union and China to wipe them out now before they became big. And he was the one who said, are you kidding, guys? You can't do that. <laughs> That'll kill everybody. And so we are all alive today because of Hugh Everett. And now his theory, I gather, is accepted by... 20 to 25% of young physicists. Right. The rest of them are still in a, associated with the Copenhagen interpretation, which is the collapse of the wave function and then all the other possibilities go away. But they're dying off. They're retiring and dying off. The younger generation is much more open to these ideas. But we have to, it's generational replacement. Well, so, but the idea is that anything that is remotely possible in the quantum wave function actually occurs it in actually some occurs. other universe. That's actually that, 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 In other words, there's no possibility that doesn't manifest somewhere. If you can think about it, it happens. Mm -hmm. If you can think about it, you're actually witnessing something that happens. Anything you can think about actually happens. Right. Now, the you know the physicist there was a there was a well-known physicist. I won't say his name, but he was walking with two of his graduate students, and the graduate students. This is way back in the day in the, in the 20th century. The graduate students were saying they were looking at this this stuff and say well, we're all made of quantum stuff. So how can we have this dividing line of decoherence between the quantum realm and the macro realm, it just means that we have, this is all like multiple, how can we know this is real? Mm -hmm. And the physicist, the, the older guy, he stubbed his toe on a rock or, or a, a sidewalk or something at that moment, and he said, because that hurts. That's how, and he yelled at his graduate students, this is the only reality that exists because that hurts, I felt it. Now, that shut those graduate students up, but... Logically, it's not a, the best argument. <laughs> no, it's crazy. Yeah. You can't say that this is the reality because this is the one we see. Look at a radio. You turn on a radio and you dial into a station. You can't say that that's the only station that exists because that's the only one we hear. We dialed into that station, but you have to understand radios and radio frequencies to know that there are other stations on other frequencies. And so with the ETs that I'm telling we're talking about in the conversations with Harvey, 
they're located in the electromagnetic spectrum a little higher up. And the same superposition things that happen that allow things to happen in the visible light spectrum happen elsewhere in the electromagnetic spectrum. So they, those things actually, so those beings can have layers within the electromagnetic, spe electromagnetic spectrum where they exist. And they, of course, have technology that allows them to travel not only to places, but through the electromagnetic spectrum. They have explained that the reason that they do not become visible when we have the conversations with Harvey, it's not just Harvey that's visible. He's got a whole entourage of like a couple hundred people. And I, and there's defense people, there's security people in the ships surrounding. We can't have those conversations without those security people. He has explained that if they were to switch a switch and become suddenly visible, that would trigger the U.S. military to have a response because then you have not only a huge entourage of extraterrestrials visible on the beach, but you have their military apparatus right there, right outside, right, I mean, right on, on human soil, on Earth soil, on the U.S. soil. And that would trigger the, a human military response, but it would also violate some type of agreement they have with the, what we call the bad ETs. This is their prison. They run this place. And they're coming in here, and if they were sort of to invade and become physically visible, it violates some type of agreement they have. Uh, it's okay for there to be a revolution from below within humanity, but it's not okay for the good ETs to just come in and disrupt things. That would trigger a shooting war. So they have to, they have to stay. Well, this vision of the planet as a prison system isn't so different from the teachings of the ancient Gnostics. Yes, it, it corresponds. There's been a lot of glimpses of it. What we have tried to do at Farsight is to recreate a whole history. If you look at, if you go to farsightprime.com, you look at all the different projects that we've had. We've had like 75 major projects where we've gone through everything from Noah's Ark. Uh, I've already, I've mentioned a few others already. We, we talked about Zeus, but also we did Ra. Uh, we did the uh, construction of the pyramids. We've done a whole bunch of stuff, all done under totally blind conditions and with multiple remote viewers. And it's amazing, just on this level alone, that they all come up with the same results, even though they're working totally alone. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's really remarkable. Yeah. And these are the really highly trained remote viewers. And so the, 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 depth of, the, depth, the depth of detail that they get is astounding. And to see the correlation with that depth is astounding. And I, I know we're going to talk about that on another episode, but the point is my purpose here was to bring that about so that humans don't think of this as an alien thing. We were all humans, so this is something that all humans should have access to. And what humans should be asking is, why can't we do that? Why isn't that like normal? When telepathy is the normal means of communication, if you're, if you're running a ship and you're trying to get it to go someplace and you're dealing with, with, uh, greys who are at the controls, do you think they actually talk in English and say, I'd like you to set a course to like Captain Kirk or something like that? They don't do that. They just communicate with thought about what they need to do and everybody knows what they do and, and they get along and they communicate fine. I'll give you an example. When you dream, you have never, ever had a dream, nor has anybody watching this has ever had a dream where you actually talked with words, with words of mouth going up and down and air moving. It's all telepathic communication, and in your dreams, those dreams actually happen. The communication works fine. 
you have no trouble <laughs> communicating ideas, but you're not like moving air. Right. So everyone has had these experiences. They just don't have them as physical human beings. Mm -hmm. And part of Farsight is to recreate a library, but the other part of Farsight is, why, is, is to show you that we humans can do that mm -hmm. and that training is possible to rebuild those skills that we had before we were here. Let's go back to the point in time where you've now achieved tenure as, as a professor. You said that's when you really began to uh, open up in terms of your remote viewing work. I was um, walking around Emory and I was just, I was with tenure and feeling happy as a lark, you know, secure employment. And I just saw a leaflet on a desk about somebody talking about UFOs or something like that. I said, well, that'd be a fun sort of distraction that I haven't had a chance to think about that for a long while. Why don't I go to that meeting? And at that meeting, they were talking about the military group that was coming out and revealing their remote viewing stuff and actually talking about extraterrestrials. And I said, that's what I have to do. Unfortunately, no one was actually training people to do that. They were actually, the military people had been told by the military that they can go out and talk about it. But the military knew that the remote viewing phenomena was going to come out, and they wanted to keep it contained within the New Age bookstore community. They didn't want it to get out in the mainstream. So they actually let the remote viewers come out, but not to really become big. What, what year would this have been? Oh, let me see. That's a good question. Um, mid nineteen. Nineteen ninety. Yeah, 19, early nineteen nineties, mm -hmm. somehow like nineteen ninety two, three, something like that. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I tried to find anybody who would teach me anybody anything, and the answer is no. And then I was doing uh, meditation, and I was also going through the Monroe tapes. Uh, that was the Gateway Experience yep. tape coming out of the Monroe Institute, and I've also gone to the Monroe Institute and actually done their week-long uh, course that they have there. It's a great place. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. That was where I, I met, uh, you know, people like Skip Alexander, and I also met... Uh, you mean Skip Atwater? I'm mean, sorry, Skip Atwater. Sorry. Yeah. Skip Atwater and Joe McMonagall. I met them for the first time there. and uh, A bunch, great bunch of people. Great bunch of people. And, and so I was doing that, and then... Um, I was meditating, but I still had no way to learn the basics of this remote viewing. And then in the middle of a meditation, this being came in, the light being came into my head. It wasn't subtle in the slightest bit. It was like, it was like a, a boom, I'm here. And basically said, the course is now ready. You're to contact this person this afternoon. And that's the end of it. And then I said, well, okay. So I, I tried to contact that person. And the person said, that's amazing you called. Uh, we, we just started this. You'd be the second student. We had one student. You'd be the second person. We'll start. Uh, I'm surprised that you were able to find me or anything. I said, I know, I signed up and I got that. And that, was, that ultimately resulted in the first book, Cosmic Voyage, mm -hmm. where it was an exploration of extraterrestrials. And I thought that was going to be it. That was going to be the thing that would sort of that we've dis the problem was humanity didn't recognize that there were extraterrestrials, and this would help people recognize that. And I thought the game was over. And, and the book was quite popular. It was a bestseller in its day. It brought in a lot of money, 
and it brought in a lot of people and it was extremely interesting on the late night radio circuit and stuff like that. <clears throat> so that was good. And then I was, uh, I was meditating at, when the book was about to come out, military people started to fight. And military people, they fight as a profession. So they were fighting. And I was really concerned. They were concerned about a bunch of things. They knew the book was coming out. I was not one of them. I was like potentially stealing the limelight. Uh, this is something they were supposed to get credit for. Stuff like that. And there were lawyer letters, really nasty lawyer letters, going back and forth all over the place. Everybody was upset. And I, I didn't... I didn't expect that. That was not what I signed up for. Anyway, so um, I was meditating inside the domes at Maharishi International University, not knowing what to do. And I went there for a month so that I could do deep meditation and sort of figure out what to do next. And every day I would go in twice, for a total of five hours, into the domes with the 2,000 guys. And there was a female dome that had 2,000 girls. And waiting for the message of what to do. And like nothing, I didn't, nothing. And finally, the last evening before I was going to leave, I went in and said, I'm not going to try to get a message anymore. This is crazy. I'm just going to meditate for myself and have fun. I just, it just didn't work. This experiment of coming here for a month just didn't work. So I go in, I meditate, and I said, this is just for me. And I was in there for five minutes, and this light being again boomed into my head. It was not in the slightest bit subtle. He said... You are to continue to develop everything you're doing with all of your ideas as you think of them. All the resources that you need will come to you at the time you need them. And then with emphasis, he said, but not before. Meaning he was gonna, they were going to control it by making sure I had only the resources necessary to do what I was supposed to do. They weren't going to give me extra millions to do stuff that I'd end up doing stupid stuff with. So all the resources that you need, you will come to you at the time you need them, but not before, as I developed the ideas that I was getting. And then he said, and you're going to have to break off all of the connections you have with the military. They're going in their own path. It's not the path that you're going to work. And then he left. And then I went, I screamed, and I went like, not, not out loud, but I screamed my mind, I said, no! And I tried to chase after him, like racing after him, but he was gone. Mm -hmm. So that was it. It was saying, keep developing, your, you're, gonna de you're to develop your thoughts as you, as you continue to work on them, and all the resources that you need will come to you at the time you need them. And you're going to have to break off with the military guys. And that's how Farsight started. Now, and that voice, where do you think that voice originated? It was one of the guys I worked with. It was one of the ET guys I worked with that sort of said, okay, we have to, we have to give Courtney a, a message. One of the ones that was with you in childhood? There were so many. I deal with so many. I don't know which one it was. I'm sure I've been dealing with him forever. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, like, for example, when I was, my, my science book on remote viewing, remote viewing, the science and theory of non-physical perception, uh, that was being reviewed for five years at the University Press of Kansas. And the editor was Michael Briggs, and they, he was really supportive. He wanted to do it. He finally decided that they couldn't push forward with it because it was just too controversial a topic for a Republican state and Republican legislature. <laughs> it was, he thought it was just too much to deal with. And also the issue was um, 
they were always, despite the fact that I kept doing everything that the negative reviewers wanted, there were always positive reviewers, but some of the negative people wanted me to do XYZ. I did all these things. The book got fatter and fatter, better and better. I was really appreciative of that. But at the very end, he said, in order to get it passed so that we're not going to run into flack from the legislature and everything, we'd have to have a whole slate of super positive remote uh, of reviewers and we can't have any mixtures at all because it's just too controversial. So, uh, but he liked the, he liked it and he was very supportive and I was so happy with him. But, um, when he finally had some results, I was so upset that I wasn't getting results. I was meditating on that day. And then, uh, while I was meditating, just as I was finishing, the guy came into the head again and said, you will be hearing today, the reviews are in, and you'll be hearing from Mike Briggs today. And I say, oh, okay, great. And then I had to rush to school. I had to teach my courses at Emory. And uh, then I came back and I said, but I haven't heard from Mike Briggs. And I said, don't worry, I know what's going to happen sometime today. Uh, I, 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 it was no doubt in my mind that Mike was going to contact me today. And sure enough, sometime around the evening, around 7 o'clock, I get a phone call from Mike Briggs at, at University Press of Kansas. And he told me about the, 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 where the situation was. So I got the results in. So that type of communication, a lot of times it's quieter and more subtle. And sometimes it's like a sledgehammer. Mm -hmm. And that was one of those sledgehammer moments. And the moment when I was just finishing Cosmic Voyage, the book was done. It was about to come out in a month. Uh, that was a sledgehammer moment and that, that happened when I was at meditating in the domes of Marishi International University. So it, it was after that that I gather you established the Farsight Institute. Yeah, it was. I had a meeting between my editor at Putnam, and Putnam was a big press and a lawyer. They hired this really high priced lawyer in Manhattan to read the book, the manuscript, and give them any legal advice relating to the book. Mm -hmm. Now, which book is this? This is Cosmic Voyage, mm -hmm. the one that was going to come out that the military people yeah. were upset with. And so I had that meeting, and at the meeting they said, well, this is a really great book. I think we're gonna, it's going to do well. I think it's interesting, but we have to have a way to teach this. And I said, but I don't do that. I, I just write books. <laughs> And they said, the editor then said, but Courtney, we're not going to publish the book unless there's a way to, some type of place where this can be taught, like an institute. And I said, you want me to create a business, like an institute? And they said, well, do you want the book published? <laughs> it was literally a condition. Well, my goodness. So they were going to... Well, I'm surprised that it would matter to them. They said, if we have to, if we're going to publish this on the same press that the, yeah. that the Pope's writings comes out on, we have to have some information that can back it up. Yeah. There has to be some way to do a follow-up on it. Mm -hmm. So you need to do that. And I yeah. said, okay, if I have to do it, then I'll have to do it. And that's where, that's where Farsight came. The unique methodology for remote viewing that was established at Farsight also came to you through a very unconventional source. Yeah, we were unhappy with the military approach to remote viewing. It just was not structured enough for us. Now, that does not criticize the military method of remote viewing. 
It's really great. It does what it does. It's very interesting. Um, Lynn Buchanan, who's really one of the very top people in the CRV community, that came out of the military stuff. That's Ingleswan stuff. And uh, he's a member of our board. He's a member of our board of directors. So they're doing, you know, the CRV stuff and the military stuff is great. There's nothing wrong with that. And Joe McMonagle has his own methods for doing it, and it works really great. So I'm not criticizing anything like that. But for what we wanted to do, it wasn't what we wanted to do. We needed to change it. So I started to fiddle with it, and I said, we need to have different procedures. So I tried, and it just... I wasn't able to come up with anything that was really radical, useful, different, solved the problem. So we had, um, we had help. We have lots of procedures, some of which are public and some of which are not yet public. Uh, and we did not develop them by ourselves. There was a year, a period where, where we had a person that was working at Farsight, uh, it's a little of a long story, but the short of it is, for one year, and exactly one year, that person would actually meet a short, gray, wraparound guy that we eventually ended up calling the gray dude. And he would show up when she went to the bathroom in the hallway, when she was on her way to the bathroom by like three in the morning. He would stun her, beam a lot of stuff into her head, she should go deep and finish going to the bathroom, go to sleep. And then she would come in in the morning, every single morning, and relay, sort of dump everything that was said. And that resulted in a really thick notebook of notes, like big notebook of notes, where I wrote down absolutely everything. So that's where it started. This guy, the gray dude, gave us all sorts of advice on our procedures. <laughs> And these were things that the person that the that was working with us had no didn't know anything about, and the the information was like this is exactly what I needed to know. And it was like you're doing this that's interesting, but you're making it too anthropomorphic. It's too you have to make it more gentle. You have to do this way that way. So he helped tweak it, mm -hmm. and also so it was a collaborative effort of us trying things, and him sort of fixing things. It's like working with a mentor as a graduate student, and the graduate student tries things, and then the mentor says, yeah, that's interesting, but you need to do it that way. It was that type of a process. After the year, we had other methods of communicating, and the sort of great dude visitations completely stopped. And we had other methods of getting this information, and the help continued, and that's when we developed other things. Really great stuff for developing, for describing societies, for, de for describing technology transfer, for describing political situations, mental stuff also for getting information out mentally. That all came to us. So we didn't invent it. I'm not saying like, like with Ingo Swan, he sort of invented CRV. And um, so you can sort of say that was his method. So I can't say that I invented what we call advanced SRV. I was a person that was involved in it, but it wasn't all me. And I tried all me at first, and it wasn't going very well. Now, uh, we talked about your communication with the invisible ET that you call Harvey as a, uh, not as a joke, but as a play on words. Yeah. And uh, when did that begin? Well, um, 
they told me it would be a good idea. Mm -hmm. That means I can sense when I'm communicating with them, and it was a good idea. We're going to expand that later to other things, and I can talk about that later, but the, the communication with Harvey said, let's do that. So I I went, I said, well, where am I to do it? So, And they suggested the beach was a good idea. You had already, at that point, I'm assuming, established Farsight. This is... Oh, this is way after establishing Farsight. This yeah. is just a couple years ago. Okay. And they suggested that, why don't we have conversations so that we can fill in the gaps? Because mm -hmm. here I am, as a human, trying to recreate everything, but there's a lot of things I needed someone to talk with to help... I was able to piece things together by myself a lot with all these projects, but I needed some, someone to knit everything together. Yeah. So I needed someone to talk with. So that was that. And, and then I, by that time, I, was, I had a movie business. Farsight became a movie business. It's not just, there's two Farsights. One is the Farsight Institute, and um, the official corporate name for that is Farsight Research Inc., and that's a IRS-approved 501c3 nonprofit. That's an educational research institute. And the other is Farsight Inc., which is uh, the for-profit movie business. Okay. So by that time, I had a movie business uh, that was successful, and we knew all about cameras. Uh, like we had good cameras. We knew how to use them. I had to learn everything about videography. I even teach a course at the university on videography one semester mm -hmm. a year, which is fun. I just do that. It's political videography, mm -hmm. so uh, like political television commercials. So anyway, videography became part of me, so I knew how to do it. So I <clears throat> brought cameras down, and I stood, and Harvey was standing there, and I had cameras, and I was facing, and I was having a communication. Later on, when I was going for the second one, he told me, don't stand, let's sit. It's going to be much more relaxing. Because I didn't think, why should he sit? If he can't, if he passes right through matter, why should he sit? And so, so but he came up with his own chair, and his chair goes where my chair was. So he told me to bring two chairs down, so we have two chairs. Yeah. I sit in one, and he sits You're in talking one. to what looks like an empty chair. It looks like an empty chair. He actually does have a chair, but it fits... Yeah. Like right on top. Right. It, it's it's sort of hard to explain, but like when you're dealing with these beings that are at this, what do you call my higher frequency level or something, that you I can see them and I can communicate with them easy, but it's like if you have to move around here and they're there, you feel like you're saying excuse me, like you have to run. But the reality is they just walk right through you and they come through. It's not like they're physical matter. But you told me at one point that Harvey actually has given you some uh, crucial insights. Some Are you serious? Tons of stuff that I never could have figured out by myself and recorded on video. They want it recorded on video. And I'm being used as a translator. Since I can do the telepathy stuff, he tells me and then I repeat it. And then that's how the communications with Harvey actually go. So it's a real-life telepathic communication with me being used as a translator. In addition, um, we've had a gray come in who, who we named, or he named himself, Bill. So we had, Bill was introduced, and he was the one who helped 
pieced a story together about what happened with the greys, and that we had to investigate with remote viewing to see if that, in fact, did happen. In fact, it did happen. So they tell us all types of stuff that I don't know, that I haven't connected the dots to. And then in the last conversation with Harvey, I got yelled at. There's this, <laughs> there's this, there's this, this woman who, she's always been in a ship each time, but she like enters the conversation, like a Zoom conversation with multiple people. She enters the conversation. And I had said something about the Me Too movement because I was a little, I wanted to mention something about um, how, you know, how the Me Too movement can become an attack vector for intelligence operators who want to go after people and they can exploit that Me Too movement. And she thought that could be interpreted as the ETs not being supportive of the Me Too movement. And she came after me like a fire, like a fire hose. I mean, she came after, she blasted me. And it was interesting to capture that. So um, she was then saying, we don't want anything coming across that makes it seem like we're not supportive of women. Women have been abused, they've been abused, they've been badly treated by stronger men for, for as long as anyone ever remembers going back centuries. And we want to know, we want everyone to know that we're supportive of women. And they said, of course there'll be things that go wrong. Nothing that happens in the beginning is going to be okay. There's going to be some mistakes where the military or, or some some agency uses it as an attack vector for something. But like that doesn't matter. It's the part of it's the part of awakening an entire population that has to become sensitive. And this earth human stuff, no one's going to be entering the free world side of the ETs if women aren't considered completely equal and the abuse and the, and the, and the subjugation and the stuff is not ended. You cannot treat women as a second class citizen and have, and have access to us. And so we, and so she said, we just want to make you understand that, that any interpretation that's against the Me Too movement, even though it's beginning and there are going to be problems with it, is not something that we appreciate. We are supportive of this growing, ongoing process. So don't look at the Me Too movement as it is. Look at it as a ongoing process that has to happen and develop more fully. And there'll be problems that happen along the way with anything, but that doesn't mean the progress isn't important. And so she wanted, and that, that was important for me to say because the most interesting part about that was that it's very different from channeling. With channeling, a channel opens their body up for another entity to come in and to occupy the mind and body and to, to say whatever they say. When you're talking telepathically with people, it's not that. You're not, you're not, no one's controlling me. No one's controlling a remote viewer. It's a real-life communication, and there can be a dispute. Now, you can't have a dispute between the channel and the entity it's, ch it's channeling. It's just, that's what they are. Well, of course, depends on how you define it. I did recently interview a channeler, a uh, very popular channeler, Paul Selig, who, who operates more or less the way you do, telepathically. Okay, well. And argues with them occasionally. That be, that's a good thing. Yeah. And then that's, sometimes they can use then, maybe they're having telepathic communications and calling it channeling, but it's really just. Yeah, that might be. It's After really all, language is pretty flexible in that regard. Yeah. Anyway, so that last conversation was Harvey, so that it was a really clear example of mm -hmm. telepathic communication being real communication because you can see a dispute going on. Yeah. And, and, and Harvey, who was also there, at the very end was sort of funny. I said, 
Harvey, you know, that, I, that, that was a, what did you, what did you think about, you and I, he said, he thought it was fun. I said, you thought it was fun? I didn't think it was fun. I was being yelled at. <laughs> so, so um, but that was actually very important for people to see that it's real communication. Yeah. And, uh, and again, you can run into some channels that, like you just said, that are talking about it and have disputes. But I would probably not call that channeling in those situations. Mm -hmm. I would say they're probably having telepathic communications with an ent with a with a, some entity, and it's a real life communication. Channeling, as I sort of define it, is where you give up, you go out, another entity comes in, takes over, and a lot of times the channels don't even remember what was said during the channeling mm -hmm. experience. And we don't, we're not, we have, we have, we have concerns about that, but we do like the idea of telepathic communication where you maintain full control. Well, Courtney, we've covered a lot of ground at this point, and I know it would be very easy to suggest that you're basically functioning as a visionary entering into the realm of mythos and I know that um, it's, it's very tempting for me to try and peg you that way, but we also have some scientific, or, or at least potentially scientific validation of, of what you're doing in the form of both uh, remote viewings that get validated scientifically and, and the exciting new work that you're doing, creating videos of Unidentified flying objects on demand. Yeah, and and w which we actually did together last night. Now I have no idea what these unidentified flying objects are, but I do think it's fair to say they are unidentified, and they did seem to be flying. And they were visible on the screen. That's correct. So while it's as tempting as it might be for me to say, well, you're a, a modern Gnostic or a, a person with with visionary ideas, you're more than that. You're a, a scholar, you're, you're a, a student of nonlinear mathematics, and uh, an experimentalist. Well, those are kind words, and that's how I like to think of myself also. As, a, as an experimentalist. Well, I want to thank you very much for being with me today and uh, look forward to our future interviews. I'm looking forward to them as well. And I have to say that you've got a great reputation as one of the best podcast interviewers anywhere. So it really, I'm the one who's honored to be here. And for those of you who are listening or watching, I want to thank you as well for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos.